Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. It just doesn't even seem real, you know, because you just can't ever imagine anything happening like that and to that extent, you know, a car breaks down or, you know, an extra bill pops up. Things always happen in day-to-day life, you know, where you think, oh, goodness, why me? But this was everything all at once. Hello and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. This week, a tale of two continents and one jobs earthquake called COVID-19. When a government shuts down the economy to fight a pandemic, there's a special duty to help all those people who suddenly can't do their jobs. That was something politicians on both sides of the Atlantic could agree on when economies started going into lockdown in 2020. In Europe and the US, hundreds of billions of dollars were spent in emergency support for workers who suddenly had nothing to do. But in the US, the money went largely on supporting incomes. In Europe, it was used to support jobs. The programmes did a lot of good in both places. But which will turn out to have been better for the economy in the end? I'm going to debate that crucial question in a few minutes with the head of the Peterson Institute for International Economics, Adam Posen. But first, to help you come to your own view on that, we've got two reports from the US and Europe. The first is from Bloomberg US economy reporter Reid Pickett. And straight after her, you'll hear from Carolyn Look, a European economy reporter based in Frankfurt. When millions of Americans lost their jobs in a matter of weeks in the spring of 2020, The flaws in America's unemployment insurance system were suddenly a lot more visible. It's not really a centralized system, but rather a patchwork of state-run programs. How much you get and how long the benefits last depend on where you live. For example, before COVID, an unemployed person in Mississippi would have received around $215 a week in jobless benefits on average. In Massachusetts, the figure was closer to $550. And those state programs don't cover everyone. If you're self-employed or a gig worker, you typically get nothing. Going into the pandemic, the unemployment system had become narrower uh, and less effective over time. You know, as we entered the pandemic, only one out of four workers who were jobless in February of 2020 were receiving an unemployment check. That's Andrew Stetner, a senior fellow at the Century Foundation in Washington, D.C. He's been studying the unemployment insurance program for years. When COVID-19 hit, he knew the system wouldn't be ready for the scale of job losses. So Congress stepped in with a $2 trillion package that not only expanded the benefits to self-employed and gig workers, but also to people who couldn't work because their kid's school was closed or they themselves had COVID. And actually, we've been largely praised. We have to get money out to the people. It was China's fault. They did this horrific thing. It was China's fault. We have to get money out to the people. So 
The CARES Act also lengthened the duration of benefits and increased payments by $600 a week to help make folks whole after COVID shut down the economy. It sounded great, but the rollout of the program was a nightmare. Many, including Terry Ashman and her husband, waited weeks, even months, for help. We, uh, we applied for unemployment, but that took months. And in the meantime, you know, by the time we got our money, we'd lost our home. And just through all of it, we'd had to start over. The Ashmans were working as independent contractors when the pandemic first hit, doing remodeling and painting jobs around Dayton, Ohio. They were evicted from their home after the bills began stacking up, relying on food banks for meals. Even after they finally started receiving benefits, complications kept popping up that halted their weekly payments, like being mistakenly flagged for fraud. It was nothing but tears and prayers the whole way through. State workforce agencies were understaffed, relying on outdated computer systems and overwhelmed by the tens of millions of applications that were pouring in. Phone lines were jammed. While many people quickly started receiving payments, others waited months for a payment. Some are still waiting. But for all the problems, the emergency payments did a lot to support out-of-work Americans. Not a bad result for a program built on the fly. We, When we look at poverty in 2020 compared to 2019, despite the fact you know, that some 20 million-plus Americans lost their jobs, Poverty, in fact, went down from 2019 to 2020. You know, that is more of it. And, you know, the biggest group of that five and a half million people were people that were prevented from falling into poverty because of unemployment benefits. So you have to say it was effective. People were able to maintain uh, their financial footing and the economy was able to continue growing um, after a very short recession. in the spring of 2020. The government did also try something that supported workers in their existing jobs, like the European furlough programs, the Paycheck Protection Program. But the program was fraught with difficulties, and it's unclear how many jobs it ultimately saved. The U.S. has since recovered about three-fourths of the jobs lost at the start of the pandemic, despite severing the connection between millions of workers and their employers. But higher turnover and a near record number of vacancies tells us that matching people to jobs has been a bumpy process. The big question for the future is whether the COVID experience will help the U.S. build a safety net that works better for all its workers. Here's Andrew Stetner again and Terry Ashman. The pattern that we seem to be in U.S. recessions uh, is temporary uh, expansions of, of unemployment benefits paid for by the federal government. That, and so it's a repeated Band-Aid on the wound. You know, the, you know, the wound is that we have a pretty threadbare safety net, uh, especially compared to internationally. So we don't really fix it. We just keep throwing a Band-Aid, you know, on it every time. It just doesn't even seem real. You know, because you just can't ever imagine anything happening like that and to that extent. You know, a car breaks down or, you know, an extra bill pops up. Things always happen in day-to-day life, you know, where you think, oh, goodness, why me? But this was everything all at once. You know, I, I 
pray to God nobody ever has to live that again. For Bloomberg News, I'm Reed Pickard. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Remember, as economies around the world pulled the shutters down, forecasters were predicting unemployment to reach 12%. Millions of people were on the precipice of losing their jobs, their livelihoods, their homes. That's Rishi Sunak speaking last week at his party's annual get-together in England. He's the UK's finance minister, the Chancellor of the Exchequer. It was under his watch that Britain embarked on its biggest jobs experiment in decades, guaranteeing the salaries of millions of workers so they could stay home during the pandemic but still keep their jobs. Much of Europe took a similar approach. At the height of the pandemic, Roughly one in four workers in the UK, Germany, France, Italy, and Spain were having all or most of their salaries paid by the state. The main concern clearly on the European approach to this labor market shock of the pandemic was that it would delay some necessary adjustments if the structure of the economy changes. That's Maeva Cousin, our senior euro area economist. So workers would stay furloughed instead of being Um, being laid off, losing their jobs, and starting looking for another job. The programs did what they were supposed to. Families could pay their bills and keep their jobs, even as large parts of the economy shut down. But there was always a worry about what came next. When economies opened up again, would those jobs turn out not to be viable in the post-COVID world? Economists predicted that UK unemployment, for example, would more than double. In fact, it has stayed below 5%. Well, the forecasts were wrong. Now that Europe's response to the jobs crisis has stood the test of 19 months of emergency, it's reigniting a debate on whether it's better to help workers keep their jobs during a crisis, at the risk of delaying necessary adjustments, or whether it's better to let people lose their jobs but support them with higher benefits, as happened in the U.S., It really depends on the crisis. And this one was a very special crisis with very little structural adjustment needed. Once vaccination program had made enough progress that you can go back to something that looks like the pre-pandemic normal. Behind the debate lies a more general assumption within the economics profession that while Europe is often kinder to its workers, its labor market is full of inefficiencies that get in the way of innovation and job creation. After the global financial crisis in 2008, jobs were hit harder in the U.S., but in Europe, the labor pains lasted much longer. 
with employment only starting to recover about three years after the U.S. European leaders, of course, did not want to see a repeat of that experience this time around. The furlough schemes went much further in supporting jobs than Europe has ever gone before. Companies could reduce hours and stop paying their employees full salaries during times when they were most strapped for cash. The inspiration came largely from Germany, where a decades-old model known as Kurzarbeit already proved itself during the 2008 crisis, when it's estimated by the OECD to have saved half a million jobs. This time, the tally is much higher. I think the Kurzarbeit thingy and the in general the unemployment insurance policy in Germany, it, it really made me feel safe when COVID first hit. That's Psyche Zheng. She moved to Germany two and a half years ago from Hong Kong, and just before COVID hit, she was working in sales and operations for a small private jet charter operator located just outside of Frankfurt, which is one of Europe's largest aviation hubs. Especially as a foreigner, I was really concerned if I lost my job, I lost my visa, I have to go home, you know. But later on, I recognized, okay, I'm actually secured. Like many in her industry, she found herself with little work when business and tourist travel ground to a halt in March 2020. My company cut the workload of almost everyone in the team to around to 50%. And the government would pay the part that we didn't work. So eventually I would still get around 80% of my salary, even though I just work 50%. Psyche was actually able to use her reduced work schedule to focus on building up other skills, such as continuing her flying lessons to get a pilot's license, and she eventually also enrolled in a master's degree. She recently switched to another company in the industry that was able to offer her a better salary. But she says a lot of her friends back home in Hong Kong, who also work in aviation, have had a much tougher time getting back into work. You know, nowadays I see people struggle to find a job actually in aviation. So, and it has been more than a year. Germany's Kurzarbeit program does have its limits. For example, it isn't available to many low-income earners, which included a large chunk of the restaurant and hospitality workers who were hit hardest by the pandemic. In addition, aid for self-employed people has been pretty patchy in much of Europe. But by and large, the pickup in spending and employment suggests the approach that was adopted by Germany and its neighbors has left the labor market on pretty good footing. Here's our economist Maeva again. The labor market is, is, in, is in a position of relative strength and um, it seems to have worked. And it seems that actually those furloughed workers have, gone, have eased back into work relatively rapidly. It doesn't necessarily follow that governments should do this every time there is a recession. The COVID shock wasn't a normal downturn. But for now, Europe's approach appears to have resulted in a jobs-rich recovery, while minimizing the pain that workers had to go through during the slump. Here's French finance minister Bruno Le Maire speaking on September 22nd. What does this also prove? It is that whatever the cost, whether thoughtful, effective and necessary policy, and that it was much cheaper to protect employees, skills, companies, know-how, craftsmen, traders, liberal professions, rather than then have to repair the damage caused by the economic crisis. For Bloomberg News, I'm Carolyn Luck.
Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Well, to discuss all this, I'm joined now by one of the great friends of Stephanomics, Adam Posen, head of the Peterson Institute for International Economics and a former Bank of England policymaker. Adam, uh, thanks for joining us again. I guess we should start by saying that governments on both sides of the Atlantic have done a lot more to support workers than they ever did before during COVID and helped a lot of people get through this. When you think about what shape those programmes, those emergency programmes have left the economy in coming out of COVID, which do you think has performed better or is likely to perform better? Thank you for having me back on Stephanomics, Stephanie, and I'm so glad you're tackling this. And you're right. The starting point is that the U.S., Western Europe, even other countries, to a surprising degree among emerging markets, did more to cushion the blow of the pandemic to their workers than in ever previous shocks. But there was a clear difference in the U.S. and most Western European countries, including the U.K. In the U.K. and Western Europe, the aid was tied to staying in work for the most part. Whereas in the U.S., you had to basically leave your job and file for unemployment to get the extended benefits. And what we're seeing is that unemployment got much higher in the U.S. And even though it's come down a lot, it still isn't down back to pre-pandemic levels and people have dropped out of the workforce. We're not seeing that kind of drop out of the workforce at the same level, and we're certainly not seeing a fraction of the unemployment in Western Europe. So it looks like on a big factor, the Western European call was the right one. Just to push back a bit, I mean, doesn't the explosion in small business creation, for example, in the U.S., in the second half of, of 2020, which is which has continued, show that the U.S. did encourage more dynamism, even though it did it also produced these greater frictions and disruptions for people. It was the right call to emphasize more the reduced frictions and not worry so much about dynamism. The the explosion in small business in the U.S. is, of course, welcome, and it shows the resilience of many American workers. But as always is the case, and we saw this in the 2008 to 10 crisis, some of those people making small businesses are just somehow making ends meet. They're unemployed, and they have to create a way of getting through it. The question is, do those small businesses thrive? Are they preferable to full-time work? Are they growing in some measure over the next few years? And that remains to be seen. I fear that the small business numbers are flattered by people just doing as best they could during the crisis. I guess when you look at the furlough schemes, you feel one, it, one naturally feels it must be better for keeping people attached to the labour market to have them formally still in jobs for a year, even if they're sitting at home, than to be unemployed completely out of or completely out of the workforce for a year. But 
But I guess at some level, just sitting on your hand for a year is, is going to affect your productivity either way. Do you think there's going to be a productivity cost to holding jobs in place the way they have in Europe? I think you're right that there is going to be this difficulty that anybody who's been out of work for a while has some decline in so what we'll call soft skills. But I think that underestimates people's resilience. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, and adaptability. I mean, remember, millions of people voluntarily walk away from jobs or lose jobs in a normal year anyway, as we've discussed in the past. And so I, I don't think that's the right way to look at it. The productivity growth benefits would be if, as you just said, these small businesses suddenly became engines of employment and growth in future. And again, I, I'm sure that will be true for some of them, but it's not big enough to justify millions of people having to go through being out of work. I feel like I'm, I'm defending the, the US case here. And we heard in our, on, the, on the piece that there were plenty of holes and even in this extraordinary scheme, plenty of people who didn't get um, support and, and questions raised about sort of the future of the US safety net. But if we, if we step back from that and just think about the productivity impact, a, ver a harsh view of the US approach would be, you know, we helped uh, businesses actually seize some great innovation and advantages in the midst of this crisis in a way that hasn't happened in Europe. And that has given us productivity growth, which will stand the economy in good stead in the future, even though we left a lot of people behind. And that is clearly going to be an issue, too. I think it's fair to pursue that point of view. I am not as convinced of it because I think a lot of the productivity gains we're talking about, your, your colleagues rightly document, are temporary or one time. I, I think, you know, it was reasonable, for example, for white collar people like me to not waste so much time on business travel. It, it was good to create a lot more services of delivery and, and, and sort of the Uberization of a lot of small processes. But these are not transformative, big technological, big productivity jumps. The other thing I would say is what we saw in Europe in the 90s and in the 2000s was a lot of the productivity problems are because the cutting edge technologies don't diffuse from the biggest companies to throughout the economy. And you've written on this, I know. Um, and that's true in the U.S. to a lesser degree, but that's got less to do with the workforce incentives and more to do with business dynamism in terms of their investment patterns and their willingness to change. I guess the final question that comes up particularly um, in uh, Reed Pickett's, uh, our reporter's piece about the U.S. was you know, just how, how the uh, massive rise in unemployment last year, clearly through no fault of the individuals concerned, put a spotlight on the, the holes and the weaknesses of the US social safety net, particularly when it comes to unemployed people. Do you think that is something that experience is going to change the US safety net forever? Or when we stop paying attention to it, is it just going to go back to the same old sort of patchwork of not very good systems? It should change the US safe network forever because we, we saw how much difference it made to human well-being, to the society's well-being, to the recovery of the economy, and how little it had the negative effects that people worry about in terms of safety net. But I fear it won't. The, the politics, the, the, both the, 
the structural politics that everything is done so decentralized at state and local government level, so it's very difficult to get in place a national safety net, but also the small p politics that there, you know, you saw the people attacking the extended unemployment benefits, making crazy claims about lazy workers or workers losing the interest in working. So I fear the lesson should be taken, but won't be. We tend to hear President Biden talking about expanding the U.S. safety net. And we know that there's been this kind of rocky road for his proposals in Congress. Is there anything he's doing that will fundamentally strengthen the safety net? I think the most important thing in the proposed reconciliation package or what used to be called American Family Plan are things to help people with medical leave, to help women be in the workforce by building up childcare and elder care possibilities by making more equal those burdens and sharing them and providing more support for children. These are all incredibly positive long-term for labor supply, but I don't think they go to the safety net in terms of what happens when there's an economic shock. So that part remains to be dealt with. So Adam Posen, we've had Europe versus the US on job support, and I think we've had a pretty clear vote for Europe in what you said. Thank you very much. That's it for this episode of Stephanomics. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, if you like the podcast, please rate it and follow at Economics on Twitter for more news and analysis from Bloomberg Economics. This episode was produced by Magnus Henriksen, as always, with special thanks to Reed Pickett, Carolyn Look and Adam Posen. Mike Sasso is executive producer of Stephanomics and the head of Bloomberg Podcast is Francesca Levy. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.